The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 3 verses 18 through 29. And I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua, and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Beor. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. It is... Indeed, good to see all of you this morning in worship. We continue our series in the book of Deuteronomy. You may notice uh, there were five verses from Deuteronomy 3, 12 through 17 that are in between what we studied last week and what we study this week, and that really is just a accounting of land allocation that we'll mention in a moment, uh, the land allocation of the kings that were conquered uh, Sihon and Og, and that factors in to what we hear today in God's word. Let's pray that God will speak to us and teach us and change us through his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you and we ask that you would do as you promise, to send forth your word by your spirit and change us, either to quicken us to life or to quicken Harden us to judgment. We would like to be quickened to life and repentance for all of us who stand under the preaching of God's word are accountable for how we hear what we do. So give us a enormous bounty of your spirit so that we rise from the hearing of your word and repent and believe and obey. And we pray this in your name, amen. David Brooks, a New York Times writer, wrote an article called What Are Words 
tell us. A few years ago, he mentions that Google released a database of over 5 million books published between 1500 and 2008. You can type a search word into the database and discover how often words have been used over the centuries. Based on this data, Brooks offers what he calls the story of the last half century. And the first part of this story is simply put, the rise of individualism. In the past 50 years, individualistic words and phrases increasingly overwhelmed communal words and phrases. For instance, the following individualistic words have been used more frequently in the last 50 years, self, personalized, I come first, I can do it myself, selfie. In contrast, the following communal words have been used less frequently, community, share, band together, common good. And Brooks concludes that over the past half century, society has become more individualistic. It has become more individualistic and has become less morally aware because social and moral fabrics are inextricably linked, thus leading to social breakdown. At the heart of our social breakdown is our rugged individualism. That's his conclusion. Well, as Moses preaches to the second generation, remember he is preaching. He preaches to them toward covenant renewal. Central to his message is a message very much counter to individualism. It is a message of service. It is a message of sacrifice. It is a message of surrender. It is a message of paying cost for the better good of the community at large. It is a message of sacrifice and a message of labor over pleasure and rest. Simply put, you'll hear him say that none should rest until all have conquered. Based on Brooks' findings, we can assume at the outset that this message will not settle easily or naturally upon us given where we are culturally in an individualistic moment. But may God give us ears to hear what Moses preached then so that we can enjoy covenant renewal now. Now look at verse 18, and as you do, consider that a life of faithfulness to God's calling always includes first serving with the Lord's people until his purposes have been accomplished. In verse 18, he says, and I commanded you at that time. Now it's really important that you understand who the you is. It is two and a half tribes of Israel. It is Gad. It is Reuben, and it is a half-tribe of Manasseh. That's who he is commanding. I commanded you at that time, saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. 
This land that he's speaking of is the land east of the Jordan just conquered as they conquered Sihon and Og. It's called the Transjordanian land. It is not over the river in the promised land, but it is good land. And it's been allocated to these two and a half tribes. And he says, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. Now watch this. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. That is a very curious command. We just fought. We just wandered in the desert for all these years. We just conquered two kings. And as two and a half tribes, you told us the land that we conquered is ours. It would have been the inclination of those two and a half tribes to say, we are glad now to just settle down. Good luck as you go into the land for conquest. Covenantal thinking, however, is to consider what is good for all, not as what's simply best for themselves. And so they receive a calling in verse 18, that all the men of valor shall cross, that those two and a half tribes, though they had already received their land, they were still required to cross over the river and to send troops, their men of valor, into Canaan to share in a victory that would benefit all of Israel. All the tribes must fight together to possess what God had given to all of them. There was to be no every person for himself or herself mentality. Zero. It was covenant community thinking. And that's at the heart of covenant renewal. Verse 19 says, only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities I have given you. Many cattle were conquered with those lands, and again, you have a calling. Because on the east of the Jordan, all those in those two and a half tribes, except the men of valor, were going to stay, and guess what? They were going to have to care for all the women and the children and the cattle that stayed. There was responsibility. They weren't going to be able to settle just yet. They were going to have to care for their brothers and their sisters, and it was many, many of them. And so both those who stayed and both those who crossed as men of valor were to enjoy corporate solidarity, feeling bound together in the purposes of God. And how long were they to do that? Verse 20, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. And then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. They were to practice that solidarity, that commitment to one another, that principle that none should rest until all has been conquered. They were to do that until the Lord's accomplishment had been brought to fruition in the promised land. And that's why the point is simply this for us. A life of faithfulness to God will always include serving with the Lord's people until his purposes have been accomplished. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers. The until, by the way, appears based on Joshua 14 
and also based on Joshua 22, where Joshua, these words are recorded. At that time, verse one of 22, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you. You have obeyed the voice. You may settle in your land. That until, in verse 20 of our passage, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, took seven years. You've been wandering for 40? And you got the allocation of land on the east of Jordan? And you had to give seven more years of fighting, of serving, of loving the covenant community? You see, it would have been far longer than even the biggest pessimists would have thought when God told them to do this. Well, that won't take long. We'll cross over, we'll conquer, we'll settle down. Peace is coming, but it seemed way farther off once they got into it. Isn't that the same for us? It seems that the kingdom to come, the consummated kingdom, the king's return, can so often feel so far off. When will we rest? When will we rest? We will not rest until the Lord's purposes have been accomplished. It was the same for them and it was the same for us. And I say that because of the connection between Israel and the church. In the New Testament, the community of those who believe in Jesus are regarded, listen, as the new Israel. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 through 16, it says this. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And who is that new creation? As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God, because of Jesus, is the church. Peter makes clear in 1 Peter 2 as he applies Hebrew titles to the people of God, reminding the believers they're like living stones joined together in a spiritual temple. He says, you are a chosen race, church. You are the royal priesthood. You are the holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the purposes for the people of God now, the new Israel, the church, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And thus renewal and faithfulness means that you and I will commit together to a life of close interdependence, commitment, service, sacrifice for one another and for this world. As Raymond Brown says, we as God's people are not to be detached soloists, but rather a collective of supportive partners and family. That's our calling, to serve with the Lord's people until his purposes have been accomplished. Many of you may have seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge where a World War II American Army medic, Desmond T. Doss, actually, who resided in Rising Fawn, he refused to kill people based on his religious beliefs. And so you may ask, why would he join the army? Well, it was to save people. He wanted to be a medic. And in May of 1945, Japanese troops were defending the last barrier preventing 
a potential allied invasion of their homeland. And the U.S. at Okinawa were ferociously attempting to take an intimidating rock face that was called Hacksaw Ridge. Soldiers would climb up an enormous rope ladder, go to war with the Japanese soldiers, many of them not making it out alive. And it was on May 5th that the U.S. secured the top of the ridge, only to be shocked by a Japanese counterattack. An attack that forced the U.S. to retreat. Imagine retreating down that intimidating rock face down to the bottom. Less than a third of the soldiers made it down the ridge. One soldier refused to leave, Desmond Doss. Without a weapon, he trudged back across the ridge time and time and time again, looking for fallen soldiers, praying after each rescue, Lord, help me get one more. Lord, help me save one more. He didn't go to the bottom of that rocky face and rest as a medic. He did not stop until the purposes were accomplished. Lord, help me save one more. Doss could not rest until the battle was done. He could not settle and be at ease until that battle was over. What about us? Has all been conquered by King Jesus? Do all peoples throughout all places know the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do all peoples know the excellencies of God that brings people out of darkness into his marvelous light? Have have mercy and justice been poured out from among us as the church like mighty rivers? Has, Has that been accomplished? I think collectively we could say the answer is no, not yet. Okay. If that's the answer, then I would ask us this next question. Do our lives resemble wartime living or peacetime pleasure? Isn't that a right question given the text? All your men of valor go fight, all your women and children and livestock stay until what? Until the Lord's purposes have been accomplished. So we might ask ourselves in this world, Does my life resemble a wartime life or a peacetime full of pleasure? Did you know in wartime that you live a life of sacrifice? To live a life of mere pleasure is something that is scorned upon for the collective has great needs. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this. Life is war. That is not all it is. But it is always that. He says, our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. 
Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. And it is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. I think this passage is very convicting for us. A place with abundant resources. Are they being mobilized for the purposes of God throughout the world until his purposes are accomplished? Or are we more like those calling on the domestic intercom for more pleasures in the den? God has not called us to a playground. He's called us to a battleground. He will set us in a place of rest forever, just as he would those that were going to cross the land. Serving with the Lord's people until his purposes have been accomplished is a life of faithfulness to God. And what that means, secondly, is that you must surrender to the Lord's plan with confident trust. Joshua sees that and then Moses. Look at verses 21 through 22. Joshua must surrender. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. One of the things we understand about the life of Joshua is he would face inevitable fear. Because it seems everybody that speaks to him is always saying, do not fear. Moses says it here in a moment the Lord will repeat it in Joshua 1 9 do not fear be strong and courageous do not fear be strong and courageous why because there was a lot of reason to be afraid Joshua was facing a massive challenge of conquest with a people that have not proven to be the easiest people to lead do not fear be strong and courageous do not fear be strong and courageous but to surrender to fear to to surrender your fear in the massive in the face of a massive challenge there are two things you see here as Moses instructs him we must first deepen our future hope in light of the faithful past he says hey look do you remember verse 21 we've conquered two kings so will the lord do to all the kingdoms first kings next kingdoms we're okay God's faithful. What he did back there, he's going to do for us in the head. You can have future hope based on God's faithfulness in the past. Is that not ours in Jesus? The ultimate expression of this pattern of looking back to God's faithfulness and looking ahead to the future hope is the hope for future resurrection. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says as much. He says in verse 20, for in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. A harvest is coming based on what happened back there. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Do not fear, people of God. Be strong and courageous. Why? Based on the past faithfulness of God through the resurrection of Jesus, a certain hopeful resurrection is coming. So we should be the most courageous people in between those times. That's the message that surrenders fear in the face of massive challenges. 
But he also reminds him in verse 22, you shall not fear them, why? For it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Moses is quoting Exodus 14, 14, as they were to cross over the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is pressing in on them. And Moses said, it is the Lord your God who fights for you. At the Red Sea and in the battle of conquest, hope for the future based on a faithfulness in the past of God. And you can surrender your fear in the face of massive challenges because we have the same God, no matter how different the challenges are. Our Lord, the Lord fights for his people so we can surrender fear. He would fight for them. Their entrance into the land was guaranteed by what God did for them and would do for them, and so is ours. Our entrance and enjoyment of the land is based on what God does for us, fully and finally. But then Moses, you see, you have to surrender to the Lord's plan with confident trust if you are to be faithful to God and experience covenant renewal. Moses is called to surrender pride in the face of a massive loss. What's the massive loss? He's not getting in. He, he makes a sincere request. Could I cross over? And what you see in the text is a play on words. He has to cross over. The Lord becomes cross and says, you shall not cross. And he says, don't talk to me about this again. Which what I love about that with Moses is Moses heard that. Okay, God, I'm done. we can't talk about it. But he could talk to the people about it a lot. And he does in Deuteronomy. He tells them all the time, I'm not getting in and it's your fault. And he says those things and it's like, that, that is really? Now, now first, before we consider that, consider the pride he has to surrender in the face of a massive loss. He has to surrender as a trusting servant to the sovereign rule of God and consider how hard this would have been. He lived the first 40 years of his life confident in his own ability to deliver Israel. He spent the next 40 having his confidence demolished, tending his father-in-law's sheep, and he spent the last 40 being used profoundly by God to lead a very difficult people through really difficult circumstances, and he made a very big mistake, and he can't go in. That would be hard. He's facing a massive loss. And he's actually facing it. Watch what the text says. He says in verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me because of you. Because of you, people. That's what he's saying. And you may say, well, didn't he sin? Didn't he sin according to numbers when he sinned and acted disobedient to God and did not do as God said? He struck the rock and positioned himself almost as sovereign that he would do what he wanted to do to provide for the people didn't that happen why is he saying it's on account of the sin of the people and I would say to you this is really important I think it's a both and but the emphasis of Deuteronomy over and over and over again just watch 
is that Moses is prohibited from entering the land on account of the sins of the people. That somewhere tied to that judgment by God was that he would take on the sins of the people and thus be banished. That for the sake of the people, Moses bears the judgment. That is the dominant, uncorrected view of Deuteronomy. It is never correct. Well, you know, Moses, it really was your fault too. That's never corrected in the scripture. Why? I believe this is a hint and a shadow. Listen to me. This is not a full-blown notion of salvation and forgiveness, but it is a picture of how one must suffer for the many. It is a shadow as we consider the coming Lord's servant who is not like Moses in that he's perfect, but he does suffer on account of the people. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Don't miss through Deuteronomy the presentation that Moses suffers on account of the sins of the people. For it is meant to point you towards the greater Moses, the servant of the Lord Jesus. And it is meant to tell you that grace comes to rotten, sinful people only when the Lord's servant receives God's judgment on your account. This is the gospel in Deuteronomy. Shadow, but full in its reality in Jesus. And so he surrenders his pride. This is so hard. God says no. God says no. When God says no, that's a moment to surrender pride in the face of loss. Why? Moses asks for something, but Moses understands. He calls himself, oh Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant, verse 24, your greatness, your mighty hand. He points to his sovereignty. This is what's really important when you face loss, when God says no, is to remember you're a servant and he's the sovereign. What was best for Moses? Moses had his ideas. God is all wise. What is best for the people? Moses' exclusion certainly serves as a stark warning to all the people. Without it, they wouldn't have that warning. Perhaps even it's good for Joshua because people who have worked effectively in leadership in the past, they don't always find it easier to hand off the task. So Maybe this was best for Joshua. What is pleasing to God? Clearly in the beginning of the prayer, that is Moses' primary concern. And so when you and I ask God and he says no, and we feel the loss of that in this world, we have to consider that those two really critical words, we are servants, he is sovereign. We don't know what's best for us. We don't know what's best for the whole. and We don't know what's most pleasing to God. And so when he says no, we surrender our pride and yield. And Moses does that. You see that in verse 28. But charge Joshua, 
and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of his people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. This is a surrender of pride in the face of massive loss. Why do we say that? Do you know how easy it would have been for Moses to say, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. This isn't fair. Joshua, good luck, buddy. These are real fine people to lead. Hope it goes well. No, he surrenders his pride because he's a servant of the Lord. And faithfulness to God looks like surrendering in trust for everything God commands us. And so he stays and he strengthens Joshua and he encourages him, very likely with a lot of pain in his heart of, I wish I could go over. But he surrenders his pride. So a life of faithfulness to God's calling always includes serving with the Lord's people until the purposes of the Lord have been accomplished and surrendering to the Lord's plan with confident trust, whether that means surrendering your fear or surrendering your pride, you do that as a servant. And the servant of the Lord came to do the same, Jesus in Gethsemane, faced a lot of what Moses did. Moses is pointing us there to the suffering servant who is faithful according to a sovereign assignment harder than any of us have ever known, the cross, and he yields, and so should we. I close with this, back to David Brooks and his work, The Road to Character. He, he says this, the way people tend to organize their lives in our age of individual autonomy is with a method that begins with the self and ends with the self. It begins with self-investigation and it ends in self-fulfillment. How true is that? It is often a life determined by a series of individual choices, but in a community-oriented method of living, the primary questions change. In this method, you do not ask, what do I want from life? You ask, what does life want from me? In this scheme of things, we don't create our lives, we are summoned by life. Well, I would add to this. Our covenant God calls his covenant people to a summoned life away from mere self-fulfillment. Rather than asking the question, what do I want from life? This text shows us that our covenant God is calling us to ask, what does God want from me? And will I refuse to rest until his purposes have been accomplished? Our sure rest is coming. But let us together live summoned lives for the king until he comes or we meet him face to face. Let us pray. Father, these are things that would be easy for us to hope go away maybe just walk away from this service and kind of ignore all the implications. But that is not where joy is found. It is found in following your design. And you have put us here for a purpose of your kingdom. Already they have been confidently met in Jesus Christ, but they are not yet fully realized. And so as we live in between, Give us a wartime way. 
Give us service, sacrifice, surrender, just like our King Jesus. For your honor we pray in Christ's name. Amen.